Hello and welcome to the second episode of News From Where We Are, the Furtherfield podcast. Yet again, we have an assortment of excellent artists and critical thinkers, which includes Annie Abrahams, Paul Hertz, Anne Clark and Martin Bates, Greta Lau, AGF, Daniel Pinheiro, Paul Bodwich, Mac Dunlop, Jennifer Seaman Cook, Eric Savaggio, Azure Carter, Simon McLennan's Solid Birds and Holger Hiller. When the lockdown hits the UK a few weeks ago, we asked contributors and lurkers on Furberfield's Net Behaviour email discussion list how they were doing. We received reports from every continent and this inspired us to create this podcast. Some of them have recorded their reports for us and we will be hearing from them in a minute. All of this reminded us that while we may be confined to our homes by the COVID-19 emergency, we still have access to thriving networked cultures from around the world. So this podcast is a conversation with many voices from the ground to explore how the collaborative, imaginative fieldwork of artists, techies and activists is informing how we organise, imagine and build solidarity, good health and post-capitalist realities. Working together and supporting others to do the same. This new podcast includes your news from where you are. Interviews, reviews, readings to explore how people want to live in our globally connected world now. First, we have Annie Abrahams. In her segment, she talks about her thoughts about the COVID virus, but also how since her lockdown in France in her home for five weeks uh, and using the internet has changed her perception and relationship with uh, the internet itself, especially when much of her work involves using particular platforms on the internet. And now they are being used by more people, as well as her meeting others more on these platforms. And then we have Paul Hertz, who discusses how he and his wife managed their social isolation in their house in Chicago for over a month. As well as talking about being at the whim of a government led by an incompetent narcissist, he touches on issues concerning power games and propaganda and the obvious similarities of slow-moving disasters such as climate change in relation to COVID-19. For already six weeks, I live in my house and garden only. I haven't talked to anyone but my husband for real. And I didn't even go shopping my own food. I completely depend on online communication. As you probably know, I do research on online communication already for years. But even so, never before have I so clearly been confronted with how exhausting it can be. We are now in a certain way networked by the situation. I kind of know how to use online communication tools in a nice, relaxing, socializing way. But when now, I also use these tools with people who have never thought about it, nor think about it, and just treat it as if it is something that needs to replace what they usually live. Yes, then then it becomes exhausting and it eats my energy. And I ask myself, why is it so energy-vore? 
so energy intensive. I think it's because there are no details visible on the screen image. So you have to imagine more and also to select what is valuable to you in this imagination. You also have to continuously scan the screen with your eyes. And you have to dissect the mono sound source for differences that gives you a clue about who is making what noise. But there's more besides this. What is there more that makes it so energy for? Daniel Pinheiro pointed already out, we have to reflect on how much the digital impacts our lives. And we have to analyze how much of it was already happening in exactly the same way before. Are there any ideas? The webcam image is an intimate image. You have to be able to relate to that intimacy. As soon as there are too many faces on your screen, you get lost in a mass. Go for small groups, small groups. Take care, stay safe. I said some time ago to a friend online that I was more concerned with the slow accumulation of sorrow than with the immediate pangs of social distancing. Anticipated grief erupts sometimes in unguarded moments when emotion overwhelms me and just as quickly subsides, swift and ingenuous as a child. I wonder if Boccaccio's young men and women celebrated their freedom at the same time that they held grief at bay. Did they confront a mix of privilege and guilt or were they just grateful for a respite from the dire motion of the world around them, however brief. In the meantime, they told stories, and so we do. And just as surely, the world is going to return to us and we to it. Here in the U.S., we also confront a government led by an incompetent who boasted once that he could commit murder and the crowd would still love him. People are dying because of his ignorance and narcissism. It remains to be seen whether he and the party that supports him will be held to account. This much is clear. A system of government that does not seek the trust of all of its citizens, but plays at power games and propaganda to divide them, is ill-prepared for crises on the order that humanity now faces. The hierarchy of slow-moving disasters we locate under the rubric of climate change are going to be much more massive than this pandemic. We are ill-prepared, but countries mired in convenient mythologies that conceal brutal histories or devoted to authoritarian visions of social order are especially vulnerable to reality. One handles reality by getting real. Getting real as a society seems to me at least to mean not just confronting the world crisis our very success as a species has brought about, but engaging people 
in a new vision of democracy. And on we go to lunch, a locus of universal agreement that we can still arrange to suit our needs if we be so fortunate. That was called The Book of Pilgrimage by Anne Clark and Martin Bates, which is an excellent tune. Next is an interview that I did with Greta Lau. This is part one, and I intend to uh, share the rest of the interview on the next podcast. Okay, enjoy. Hello, Greta Lau. Thank you for... well. I was going to say visiting, but you're not. We're both stuck in our homes uh, during the COVID-19 virus. Indeed. I wanted to, first of all, discuss uh, some of the ideas behind your AI work 
especially some of your, well, your exploration around uh, generative adversarial networks, GAN. Mm -hmm. And sort of like because you've been working uh, with Casper, who is your son. And so do you want to kind of elaborate why you've been doing that and what that means to you? Yeah, sure. So thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. It's um, always great to talk to you. Um, Yeah, so the project that you're mentioning is called They Learn Like Small Children. I have a background in psychology. I studied psychology at university uh, and I was noticing as this uh, progression in the sort of language was happening in the discourse around digitalization uh, that there was a progression from discussing big data and software um, through to kind of algorithms um, and that black box of technology, as you often refer to it, Mark, and the work that you've done with proprietary technologies has definitely been really interesting to me. Um, And then the way that that progresses into the current discourse around AI and machine learning. And that that became really interesting to me, this idea that all of a sudden we were referring to things as being artificially intelligent, that in the past we probably would have just referred to as a piece of software or at most an algorithm that was based on large amounts of data. And so I wanted to look at that that sort of claim, I suppose, or this this idea that, that these pieces of software could be called artificially intelligent. And I was just curious about it from the point of view of what is intelligence and how can you attribute something like intelligence to these pieces of software that are doing complex but relatively limited tasks. Uh, And so I I began kind of talking to experts, technologists, people that work with AI, people that know more about it than I do because I'm not deeply in that field myself as a programmer. A, A comparison that came up very often was this idea that we can call it intelligent because the the algorithms or the machine learning systems, the neural networks, learn through this model of trial and error in the same way. This was the um, claim being made by some of the technologists that I spoke to This in the same way as small children do. Uh, and that was something that really struck me. As you said, I have a small child at home. He was five at the time. And I just really struggled to see how a piece of code could learn in the way that a child learns. And I thought that this comparison to human development was really telling in so many ways about the culture that exists within that sort of um, technology-driven sort of Silicon Valley-esque world. Because children learn in such an embodied way, you know, they, they learn along with emotion. There's so many other sort of really nuanced and um, interesting aspects to the way that children learn that I think is very different to the way that a, um, a neural network learns. So that was something that, yeah, that I wanted to work with in a, in a sort of, um, I guess, a relatively playful or sort of poetic way and not in such a direct sort of mechanical way. So uh, what did some of the works that you, uh, that came out of this, what did they look like? Right. So I worked with uh, a large database essentially of Casper's drawings so he's a very prolific uh emerging artist (laughs) I guess you could say he does a lot of drawing so I took a big selection of those drawings that he made um made a database out of them loaded them into um an online um GAN uh and in that because it's a, a GAN as you said it takes two sets of input and basically compares the two so 
one of the data sets that I trained it on was this set of Casper's drawings and the other set was um, photographs of children, just sort of um, online found images of children. And so what the GAN then produced is a series of portraits of children um, in the style of Casper's drawings essentially or in the style that it interprets to be Casper's drawing style. Um, and what, what you kind of – and what you get out of those – are some fairly spooky looking images that have this really sort of innocent, as we would usually attribute it, um, source, I suppose. And I then took, I selected a series um, from the GANs outputs, had them printed on linen, and then extracted small graphics from Casper's original drawings and had um, machine, machine embroidered those over the top of the um, printed images. And and also, so uh, two questions regarding this. So, so, what did Casper think of the work? <laughs> and also, what did other people? What was the reaction that you got from other people? Well, Casper absolutely loves it. He, um, I think, is really into the idea that he trained the machine, and he likes to sort of talk to me a lot about uh, when he sees his work in my art. He, I think, he's really quite proud, which I, is really sweet. Um, but also he, he's interested in this idea of the machine and he feels like uh, he had a lot of input and control over that machine, which I think is an interesting thing as well, right? It's quite a naive approach to take. Obviously, it's totally understandable why he thinks that, but, you know, that's not sort of getting at the complexity of the, um, you know, of the technology that's underpinning, underpinning that. And, of course, it, you know, he's, he's miles away from sort of understanding and grasping the political and social implications of AI as it sort of gets frog-marched into the mainstream. The only um, public showing that it's had so far was the exhibition that you curated in Cyprus at Nîmes. Um, ah, yes. <laughs> which was wonderful. I mean, I have the piece up in my studio. I think it is it is interesting to to sort of see because I think the pieces, they're, they're large format wall hangings or they can be also hung in space. They're sort of these large format textile pieces. I think there is something that is quite creepy about them and yeah and the interesting thing about that is that both the drawings the original drawings when they go through that sort of mediation process that I have to obviously do to turn them from a child's scribblings and drawings on a piece of paper into a template that I can you know put through software and use in combination with a quite advanced embroidery machine there is something about that sort of mediation process and the extraction process that even turns the original drawings into something that can look quite spooky and then on top of that you know it's it's embroidered onto these images from uh the the ai which or the, the gan which of course doesn't have a concept of what a child is or why a child is considered innocent or sweet or cute or any of these things it, it's it's just trying to replicate a certain series of features like eyes you know mouth whatever but of course a lot of it kind of goes awry in the transformation process and especially when it's doing so in the style of a child's drawings which you know the child itself is also you know at the sort of beginning phases of trying to compile all of that visual information into a drawing right also with limited somewhat limited motor skills and limited experience and practice with drawing all of these kind of things come together to make an image that both has a naivety to it but is also i think has a horror to it as well
touch, crit, power, power, but cold. track was by AGF called This Dance. I highly recommend visiting Bandcamp and buying uh, some of uh, her tunes. I expect to be playing more in the future. Next up, we have Danielle Pinero, uh, who reads out a text for us while being in lockdown in Portugal. Uh, the writing that he is reading is from an essay titled When Online Goes Viral. He also sent an introduction on MP3, so I'm going to let him uh, introduce it himself. So here we go. Hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Pinheiro, and I'm speaking from Porto, Portugal. I think my own way of expressing what we are going through or how am I feeling in relation to what we are going through regardless of my my specific and individual um, context, uh, was one of writing a text which, uh, which I will read. And it was the best way I could express this specific moment in time and space. The text itself draws inspiration from a lot of uh, articles, uh, works of art, from the past and from now, and it's kind of a mashup of all those thoughts and letting them flow um, inside of me and 
and come out again in a, in a different form. I will leave you with a reading of the text, wishing that everyone else is going through this the best way possible and that we all find our own ways of coping and dealing with this situation now and in the future the best way we can together. When online goes viral, the possibility offered by the internet from very early on finds its purpose well amid a global pandemic. It took a virus to trigger the shift, to activate the transposition from in real life to the digital sphere, as if we were already not inhabiting it before. The extension of our lives became life itself, replicating to an infinity of live streams, online viewing rooms, remote learning, and all sorts of video conferencing sessions in an attempt that life doesn't stop its rapid and overwhelming velocity printed increasingly over the past few decades. It is important to notice that it all happens amid the global pandemic caused by COVID-19 in the first part of the year 2020. Social distancing opened the hole in space in and from every corner of the planet to the other. We are probably still in the beginning of a dilated process of dealing with the cause that imposed this new paradigm. And in this beginning, it all still seems very possible. The same way we all were having trouble coping with the fast pace of life itself, constantly switching between online and offline, now the time has come where we are faced to cope with just being online, where everything happens online, where everything is elevated to the digital, raising questions of access and privilege. Digitization is not, as we testify in the present moment, an equalizer of opportunities until access is a common and social utility. This invisible threat abruptly invaded our ways of living and forced every stream of real life to be interrupted. Almost everyone was left where they were. Even the ones whose lives had to continue, so that some order was present within the chaos, those were asked to pause their own lives and live one that was in favor of all those isolated and the infected. It is in this new reality, uncertain in duration, that we continue to wake up to a world where distance and time are measurable again. Measures that we are still questioning and trying hardlessly to dismiss and pretend as if they are not real by insisting on a productivity paradigm which overrules the human practice of actually being together and functioning as an organic system which is made of every human involved in it. For many years into sedentarism, we were living, also for many years, through and with the digital, with the sense of having achieved a nomadic lifestyle where, despite of our own physical locations, we could seamlessly coexist in multiple and ubiquitous versions of ourselves, being the only species able to do so. Feeding and fighting on gentrification, Western society was the epitome of how much we had accomplished, the transformational wish of a social change afforded by technology, thus placing the generations living 20 years into the new millennium within the ultimate representation of success in terms of evolution. The next pandemic, 
an episode from a documentary series on Netflix from 2019, portrays exactly what we are going through, precisely by the reasons of our success being the cause of a great failure of the system as it was. And yet, we continue to demand high-end and fast adaptation to something that we expect to be over soon, so that we can go back to some sort of normality. Technology was already, and it is now, the medium through which we can address the crisis we are going through. And it shouldn't become a transposition of what we were already going through. As webcams sell out and the urge to be present online as a means not to be forgotten, the live stream, as it happens now in complete digital form, leads us into a disembodied interaction and highlights the networks we belong to. Now, more than ever, we might be left alone with the ones who share the same tastes, thoughts, and provocations. We're all sitting in a room which is different from everyone else's room, and what we might be left to hear will be a smoothed version of our own speeches. Our vulnerability will grow evident, our need for affection will grow thicker, our sense of existence will most probably come down to be defined by interdependence. What good is to connect if there is nothing to connect on the other side? This is probably the first pandemic to be expanded in a worldwide scale to the digital, and it will be part of everyone's history. The year that a global pandemic took place, and the proof of that will be the large amounts of digital content created through the most varied platforms. An expanded, distributed, impossible to gather depiction in various formats of a moment in time where virtually almost everyone who's privileged enough to live in conditions to do so contributes to the technosphere. The networked society is being enacted as we leave its dominion, and as many times before technology did, if we leave here long enough, we might forget how to find the exit. Or will we become more conscious? Hoping that we can get back into our bodies again, We have to reflect on how much the digital impact has over our lives and analyze how much of it was already happening exactly the same way. Social media surveillance has been present in our daily lives for a while now, and it is now, more than ever, the solution to monitor our behaviors and to be enforcedly implemented to control and normalize them. It is up to us, as always, to be aware and work from within mindfully questioning the tools that are given to us. Thinking ahead, in a few weeks, months, we'll become exhausted. Digital fatigue will soon take over our bodies, if it hasn't already. And although the internet and immediate communication seem as the salvation for a period of confinement, we must address the wariness which we will be subject to. So far, electricity hasn't stopped and thus its vertiginous velocity continues to be printed in the lives of all. Online has gone viral in the sense that in order to cope and simulate normality, even if working towards new configurations of living and coping, the takeover had already happened. The infrastructure was already activated, but fortunately we were allowed to choose.
jobless or not, the anxiety increases. The repetitiveness will repeat over and over. And despite the digital access, we must aim for humanness within and beyond the emotional devices, which are now, nevertheless, granting us a sense of togetherness.
This one is called Windrush and is an experimental sound poem. Rush. 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 Shush. 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 Us. 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 Rush. Wait. Wind. Wait. Wind. Wait. Ica. Rush. Rush. Ica. Rush. 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 Bus conductor. Rush. Plus. Ica. Rush. Rush. No go. No. No. No go. 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 Swing. Six. Swing. Stick. Swing. Six. Sticks. Face. Race. Face. Race. Face. Race is. 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 Okay, so that uh, was Stuart Bodwich called Phantom's Mug from the album Hibernation. And he does also uh, an uh, excellent amount of different experimental sound albums and tunes out there, so worth looking out for. The last one was a performance by Mac Dunlop called Windrush. And Mac Dunlop is an old friend of mine who used to work with me in Pirate Radio used to be that used to be in Bristol years ago in a sense this podcast feels a bit like uh, some of the work that we used to do in Bristol on Pirate Radio and uh, it's nice to actually feel that energy once more so now we have uh, a radio essay titled uh, coronavirus playlist number one by Jennifer Seaman Cook who gives us a cultural report from the United States. Her coronavirus playlist looks at post-punk cultural history and neoliberal challenges to the creative gig work of community. Her essay uh, searches for a new wave outside market logics of science fiction hyper-reality we are living in and asks us to look beyond the hero image to the future glitch of the present. I could only play one part of this radio essay, but I do intend to play more in the near future. Part 4. Plurality in the Logical Time Space Before us now stretches a socially mediated social life, not just the ludicrous slapstick of Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, stitched from absurd scenarios of the quotidian in the efficiently globalizing assembly line, nor the obedient and isolated android, freshly detourned into new machine rhythms like Kraftwerk out of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. 
Yes, we observe coolly, we rationalize, or we shout, or we plead, make jokes, bake bread, stand in bread lines, enter the fog of illness, die or don't die, bury, learn new resourcing and work habits, start regular homeschooling. Simultaneously, we are also the android who struggles with a social body in pain and to operate beyond what's programmatically wrong in all of this. What I have seen through your eyes, this android says, ironically. Mark Fisher wrote, all time is entrepreneurial time because we are the commodities so that any time not spent selling ourselves is wasted time. For Fisher, when the masters of success are also its slaves, the expectation for the rest of us is the work of a replicant, one given human feelings and then required to perform submission. Suffering, he calls it, but with a smile. A translation for the now, take care of yourself and be strong. We will all get through this. Or we want work and haircuts. Or thank you for your generous service. Image management becomes another class performance of submission. What is so much real work, Mark Fisher adds, but an act of simulation. Note the impetus here to parade more flair at the office. It's not work, but you should want to, and you absolutely must be seen doing it. While pleasure signals rank, it's also your cumulative utility status. You are so much more attractive when you smile through this. But now I'm angry and we've slipped into the media of the 90s. An image might crystallize for us across the past and present. Who were we? What have we become? What will we project into the future after? The methods now meet different publics. We can't replicate the movements of time spaces past. This is good news too. The simulation is reversible. Every existing simulation has boundaries, wrote N. Catherine Hales for there is the continuing materiality of the world. What more is there to say? Cultural change demands a time-space of process over product. What do we do when the product has become pervasive process? I offer no specific answers. A good song shouldn't provide this, but sometimes, if we're listening, it might give us a magnetic compass. I keep thinking about Newman's last line in metal. I'm still confusing love with need. We are at a threshold moment. This is the knife's edge. Here ends the first song of my coronavirus playlist.
Well, thank you, Jennifer, for giving me an excuse to play Gary Newman's Metal. And it's excellent to hear that again. Now we have Eric Salvaggio's contribution to the programme. And it's called uh, Nothing to See Here. What stories can we find in the AI-generated descriptions of coronavirus stock photography? It's from a well-researched essay tracing COVID-19 stock photographs, where he asks questions about the simulated microscopic stock image used and issues around its classification visually via digital machines and search engines and how it has found its closest description. I was looking for COVID-19 stock photographs when I saw it. The same image you've probably seen in countless news stories and blog posts about the novel coronavirus. It's a simulated microscopic image where the virus itself appears like a big white ball, with red triangles bursting forth from tiny antenna. It was simple enough for me to recognize, but the image classification engine was having a harder time of it. Struggling to define this strange new thing that has so disrupted our lives, it looked to its memory and found the closest description it had. Red and white flower petals. Image classifiers compare a photo to other photos in a training library, then pull out similar tags to generate a description. The key here is that it's always looking backward to what it knows, the stuff it's looked at before. So COVID-19 makes for a strange case, as I kept exploring, the emotional distance between the images and their descriptions was what you might expect. The machine is comparing symbols of two-month-old realities with images from a world that could barely conceive of the phrase global pandemic. All the iconography of this new era is there in pictures. Hand sanitizer, face masks, handwritten notes taped to the doors of shuttered businesses. But they were either unrecognizable to the machine's reference library or else their context was completely ignored. The result is a poetic gap. The virus is reduced to a flower arrangement. There's a dreamy, naive surrealism between what we see and what the sentence below it describes. Elsewhere, I see a nurse covered in PPE standing in front of a hospital. The machine simply sees a woman in blue standing in a field of flowers. I see a data visualization of casualties, those familiar red circles obscuring American and European cities like pools of blood on black backgrounds. The machine sees an abstract painting. It describes another as a floral print on textiles. There's an image of that old stock photo standby, the post-it note with handwritten messages. This one has four, spelling out the COVID equivalent of slogans from the most boring revolution. Stay home, be safe, Keep your distance. Don't go outside. The machine labels it as a birthday card. It happened to be my birthday. Elsewhere, we see signs on the doors of businesses who have closed them. Messages full of uncertainty about when they might reopen. The sentence below it reads, pieces of paper. It's not wrong. They are pieces of paper. It's just that it isn't the point. There's an old joke in which a doctor turns to Abraham Lincoln's widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, just after the presidential assassination inside the Ford Theater. In the joke, the doctor asks, but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? The machine has its own version of that bit. There's no reason to expect it to do any different, and I understand why this happens. What I didn't understand is how caught up in it I would be. 
In a world where we're longing for the dull normalcy of January as if it were some kind of paradise, this all fell into a stark, confusing alignment with that yearning. Maybe a piece of Mary Todd Lincoln wanted to talk about the play. It would mean a world where the tragedy didn't happen or a world where she'd simply been able to forget it for a moment. Both impossible and seductive dreams. The labels on these images are gleeful in their denial and their weird insistence that there's just nothing to see in this photo of people in surgery masks on an empty city street. It's just two people. That sign marking 1.5 meters of social distance on the sidewalk? Nothing to see here, just a sidewalk. Playground with a giant menacing closed sign on the gate? Nothing to see here, just your average playground. The algorithms describe these images strictly by references to our lost quote-unquote normal world, literally incapable of generating the kind of vocabulary needed for this messy reality. You could draw some critical insights about gaps in attention and context between humans and our algorithms, but I'm struck by how they show us the world through a pre-COVID lens. Not nostalgic, not that sense of being away from home, but nostalgic longing for a home that is leaving us. The gap lets out our normal past drifting into the present, but the result is a jolt. It only highlights the contrast between where we are now and where we were then, sneaking a tiny emotional itch into the everyday world of stock photographs. Max Ernst wrote about his Dadaist collage as the confrontation of two or more mutually alien realities on an obviously inappropriate level, and the poetic spark which jumps across when these realities approach each other. In the case of these machine descriptions, the code is working fine, it's making an analysis, but the algorithms haven't caught up to our context, or they simply don't care. And that gap is where the poetic spark leaps So for the last feature on this podcast, but in no way the least, we have an excellent segment sent in by Azure Carter, who is also the longtime partner of artist Alan Sondheim. We've shown Alan's work a few times at Furberfield, whether it has involved featuring and or interviewing him about his work on Furberfield or including his work in various exhibitions through the years. On top of being a prolific artist, Alan Sondheim is also an, a prolific email sender onto the netbehaviour.org email list as well. In contrast to Alan, Azure is dedicated to letter writing. And not just that, they are works of art in their own right. Azure writes regularly to Ruth Catlow Furfield and many other friends uh, around the world communicating via snail mail. Ruth is not as good as in getting back as much uh, as she wishes, but does not but does manage to respond every now and then. But I think it's time to let Azure uh, speak now. Thank you. Dear Ruth and Mark, wow. Soliciting a letter for a podcast. Touche. That's the kind of trick I'd pull to guilt a recalcitrant correspondent into writing me back quicker. But of course, you know I'm good at responding, and I've already felt guilty that it's taken me a couple of weeks to write back. I got your email at the start of a mad dash home from Colorado, and then it's taken a while to rest up and deal with our new realities. Now I have to try and overcome overwhelming self-consciousness to attempt to write a typical letter to you, even though I know it will likely end up in a podcast, I've been warned. See, my death-themed birthday greeting was prescient. 
I'm glad you're being spared Brexit-related news, and I'm glad Boris Johnson didn't die. More John Burkow would definitely cheer us up, though. Bring him back. Unfortunately, we are not being spared Trump news, and I've been starting every morning with The Guardian, and maybe I shouldn't because it's so fucking depressing. At first, I was glad that we were being spared incessant political ads, but now I'm not because we definitely need to get Biden elected since it looks like he'll be the Democratic nominee, and I'm worried what social distancing and lack of visibility will do to his chances. I'm glad you liked my interview about my grandfather at the RAF Museum in London. Now they have a blog post to go with it, How an American Saved Our German Heinkel HE111. I've inherited the painting they feature in the post, and it's resting on top of our pump organ with a happy spring banner draped across it until we figure out where to hang it. It's pretty big. I'm so sorry you've had to cancel Furtherfield's Love Machines program. Hopefully it's just postponed and not canceled. Luckily, if any organization is suited to transitioning to a robust online program, it would be Furtherfield. If anything good has come out of this pandemic, it has to be that so many wonderful online cultural resources have become accessible for free. Did you complete your big writing project? Were you able to concentrate? What was it? Have you been making local deliveries? Are you having any trouble getting groceries, toilet paper, etc.? How are both your families? Alan has his work and artifacts archived at the University of Washington, Vancouver, as part of the Electronic Literature Organization, and we were supposed to drive out there so he could give a talk and go over the archives with the librarians, etc., etc. We had been planning for months to drive out there in April. There are lots of logistics to deal with and being on the road and away from home for two months. We were planning on leaving March 5th, and at the time, there were cases of COVID-19 in Washington state, but there was no inkling of all the countrywide shutdowns to come. We went to the pharmacy a day before we left to pick up some last-minute things, and they were out of hand sanitizer and wipes, but the crazy stockpiling hadn't begun. We were calling Dini Grieger, who was bringing us to the University of Washington, to see if she thought the school would close. She said she didn't know and would understand if we didn't want to risk being in Washington. We said we were all packed and ready to go, so if she still wanted us, we'd like to come. She said she'd still love to have us, and even if the students weren't in class, we could still get things done. So we left on March 5th. I don't know that if we knew what we know now, if we would have left or prepared to stay away even longer. The trip started out perfect. We stayed at an amazing motel in Clarion, Pennsylvania from the 70s with an enormous plant-filled atrium inside. We asked the hotel if the virus was impacting business, and they said they were already seeing cancellations. We stopped in Chesterton, Indiana, and climbed up a four- to five-story sand dune at a state park with views of the sun setting over Chicago. We stopped at lots of rest areas and travel plazas and antique malls along the way to break up the drive. Our longest leg was ten hours. We found books and unusual musical instruments along the way. I also got an old Bakelite Viewmaster and dozen reels with views of new U.S. national parks. We spent about a week in Omaha, Nebraska with our close friends, Lee and Barbara, who are both artists Alan met in Dallas, Texas. Barbara made us amazing dinners and we celebrated her birthday and played with their cats and ran all over town with them and saw bald eagles and met a man with a letterpress 
film memorabilia collection to rival the Smithsonian and hung out at a progressive Methodist coffee shop and got blinged out Mexican gang t-shirts. Meanwhile, the Dow Jones was plummeting. There were more rumblings about the virus. The World Health Organization declared the virus a pandemic. People were starting to stockpile. Allen gave a great talk to the art department at the University of Nebraska-Omaha with a full crowd of faculty and students. He set to teach an online class there in the fall. And the next day, the university transitioned to online classes. Lee and Barbara both teach art, so we got to watch them go through conniptions, trying to suddenly switch to online teaching. Barbara has it really rough because she teaches painting. Nebraska is one of the states that still doesn't have a stay-at-home order, but there were already changes going on, like the schools closing and restaurants switching to takeout only. My parents, who we were going to visit next, said they couldn't get any toilet paper in Colorado, so we went to the grocery store in Omaha to get them some. People were coming out with overflowing shopping carts full of supplies, and the store was limiting people to two packages of TP per customer. Most food items were still available, but the stores were out of thermometers, rubbing alcohol, bleach, etc., and low on anything shelf-stable like rice and beans. It was definitely stressful watching the news every day, and still is. We felt vulnerable because we were on the road and the situation was changing every day, and we were worried about motels, rest areas, restaurants, borders being closed, and we didn't have supplies back home, and we had this wonderful trip planned. We all had some sleepless nights. After a tearful night, I teased Alan that I had had enough of the plague. He asked me what the worst part of the plague had been. I said, people dying? He asked what the best part was. That stumped me for a minute, and then I came up with an expected vacation time. We were trying to figure out if we should go on with our trip or not. We had been planning to go all the way to Victoria, British Columbia to visit Alan's brother's family. We decided it would be safe to travel on to my parents in Aurora, Colorado, and reevaluate from there. We didn't bother to stop at any antique stores. We figured they would be closed, and if they weren't, that it wouldn't be safe to visit. Nebraska is a funnel for sand hill crane migration, and the peak viewing time is mid-March. I knew this, but I didn't think we'd be able to stop at any of the viewing sites. Luckily, about an hour into our drive, I spotted large, dark shapes in the fields. Most of Nebraska is flat farmland. After a bit of mental math figuring out the probability of what could be large and in the fields, my brain registered that there were hundreds of cranes in the fields and flying overhead and squawking. As we drove along for the next hour or so, there were thousands. We saw 10,000-plus cranes easily. We stopped several times to watch them and take photos. They are such big birds, and it is so unusual to see such large numbers of any animal anymore. They stop off near the Platte River to feed in the fields and to put on 20 pounds before continuing their journey. The cranes are also famous for their mating dances, but that tends to happen in the evening, so we didn't really see that. We got to Colorado in the evening in time to have dinner with my parents, and after dinner, we got an email from Deanie canceling our visit because the campus had shut down until at least May, and she'd try and bring us out next year. That was on May 15th. 
We hadn't even been gone two weeks, and already so much had changed. Luckily, there weren't many cases in my parents' county, and they live in a big house that backs onto a reservoir, so we had lots of space and could walk in the reservoir every day. We saw a flock of American white pelicans pass overhead and a pair of great horned owls hunting together. I helped my parents pack because before all this craziness, they had been planning on putting their house on the market in April and moving to Oregon. The trip to Washington was canceled, the border to Canada was closed, but we were struggling to decide if we should travel to Utah to visit my aunt or stay put or to go home. There were fewer cases in the middle part of the country than home, but we weren't prepared necessarily to be away from home for months, and already some rest areas had been closed and reopened, motels, hotels were closing, Rhode Island was asking cars from New York State to register with the National Guard when they entered the state. It's hard for me to see my aunt and we're very close, and we were only a day's drive away, but it would have been taking us one more day further from home, and we were so stressed about the unknowable. And then Utah had a 4.7 earthquake and hundreds of aftershocks, which didn't even make the national news. And my aunt was told to quarantine because someone at her work tested positive from COVID-19. So we spent a week and a half with my parents and headed back to Omaha. We spent a few days with our friends, our last in-person contact for weeks, and high-tailed at home. Originally, we were supposed to stay with other friends on the way back, but they were understandably nervous because we had been traveling. So I had to try and find hotels that looked safe and were in counties with low numbers of coronavirus cases. Gas prices out west were cheap, around $1.20 a gallon. We could pay by credit card at the pump for gas, and we had a box of disposable gloves with us. There was a nonstop stream of trucks on the highway, but we pretty much were the only car until we got closer to bigger cities. Luckily, the rest areas seemed pretty clean, reeked of sanitizer, and were almost hands-free between doors, toilets, sinks, soap dispensers, and dryers with sensors. We stopped in South Bend, Indiana the first night, where Pete Buttigieg was, had been mayor. We would have walked around the empty campus of the University of Notre Dame if it hadn't been so cold. We felt more nervous after leaving Indiana because we were heading into states with higher numbers of positive cases. We decided to go home through Upper New York State and Massachusetts instead of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut like we did on our way west because the worst of the outbreak was concentrated in that area and we heard that other people were having trouble finding places to stop in that area. Even though most of the states already had stay-at-home orders, every big city we drove through was crowded with cars on the road like Cleveland and Buffalo. I'm sure it wasn't jammed as it usually would have been, but there was still heavy traffic. All the electronic road signs that normally tell you about road work and accidents flash things like stay at home, save lives. Travel plazas that had three to four fast food choices closed all the restaurants except a single McDonald's or Burger King or Roy Rogers and only offered burgers or chicken sandwiches and you had to take them out to eat. We spoke to one of the workers and she said they were having trouble getting deliveries of things like tomatoes. We spent our last night in Batavia, New York, a little town that is only there because of a racetrack. Both hotels we stayed at said they were cleaning more, that no one would enter your room while you stayed there and if they normally offered a 
breakfast buffet, they offered to-go bags with bottles of water and granola bars and fruit. We were worried about not having food when we came home, so we filled up our tiny Honda Fit with two bags of groceries in Colorado and one more in Nebraska. Rhode Island was asking all travelers to self-quarantine for 14 days. I tried to place an online order for groceries to be delivered, but the local store was booked solid for the two weeks they listed. Luckily, our upstairs neighbors, Matt and Lisa, who were picking up our mail and watering our plants while we were away, were amazing. They were calling us with updates from Rhode Island and offered to pick us up groceries the day we got home. We got back the evening of April 1st. April Fool's! We weren't even gone a month. Our neighbors left flowers that said, congratulations, you made it home. I felt so relieved we were off the road. We unpacked the car and took showers and washed our clothes and hunkered down to quarantine. Spoiler alert, we didn't have COVID-19.
That last track was uh, Simon McLennan's band, uh, Solid Birds, and the song is called Rotluff. Simon McLennan is also on the Net Behaviour email list as well, and uh, has also exhibited in exhibitions that we have uh, presented. Uh, one of them is uh, Children of Prometheus that we showed a couple of years ago. The community is being represented through these podcasts, and it really does reflect a dynamic culture, and it also shows us what a strong community that we're part of. And that's kind of what this podcast is about. Have a look at some of the projects that Furfield is showing. Some of the people on this podcast are also in them. And, uh, well, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.